Hello, welcome to We Don't Talk About the Weather, political discussion that to the uninitiated major sound like screaming and crying. I'm Adam and I'm here with Hugh. Hello. And we're here to talk about news and politics and events and all kinds of things. Oh, I miss the sun. I miss the sun already. I miss it. I miss it so bad. Walking the dog in the rain. We don't talk about the weather. Sorry. <laughs> what about the temperature? Um, it's weird. It's all humid and yeah, it's shit at the minute. It's yeah. that proper London stank. Mm. It's not very nice. Um, yeah, so we've got a couple of topics this week. Um, we're going to start off with Owen Jones. Yep. Lovely Owen Jones. Lovely jumper man Owen Jones. He's being very nice. Um I really like watching him on Twitter virtually every weekend knocking on doors. Yeah. That being said, last weekend he was wearing a terrible outfit of like a little stripy shirt and shorts. Well, did you see Jude in London has offered to do his wardrobe? Um, that's very nice of him. To like re- restyle him. That's very nice of him because it's like I don't like criticising people for what they wear Yeah, because I think in reality, people should just wear whatever they're comfortable with and people yeah. shouldn't be teased with what they're wearing because then I could get away with wearing super cool hooves. Um, <laughs> but I can't wear that because people will laugh at me. And also, you know, I dress like a slob, so well, yeah. So it's pretty easy for me not to criticise people. I have three of the same T-shirt that I wear all the time on a rotation until they dissolve. I got one of those multi-packs of black T-shirts yep. from Amazon. Yep, It's just like, whatever. Buy my jeans from Next. From the <laughs> I've Given Up collection. <laughs> Um, anyway, Owen yeah. Jones. Owen Jones, who uh, seems week, to have also given up <laughs> on his outfits. Given up and taken up a strong mantle of opposition to the British media. Yeah. Um, this week he tweeted at uh, about media representation and the composition of the media class. And people went fucking apeshit at him. Oh my god. I... What did they say? Was it people? Was it people like Julia Harleybrewer saying, "You're right, meritocracy does not exist." Ah, uh, well, <laughs> ah, I do have some examples of things they said. Okay. So what he said okay, was, tell me that. "The main thing I've learned from working in the British media is that much of it is a cult, afflicted by a suffocating groupthink, intolerant of critics, hounds internal dissenters, full of people who made it because of connections and/or personal background rather than merit." Sounds like Malmentum. <laughs> Did someone say oh, that to him? Oh, no. There were 400 people saying, hmm, <laughs> sounds like momentum. Where's sounds my like buddy? Jeremy Corbyn. Where's my column in the Telegraph? <laughs> Got to be quick off the draw in this economy. Um, uh, Julia Hartley Brewer did actually reply. I think she subbed... Uh, uh, what's, the, what's, the, what's the Twitter tweet. mechanic? She didn't quote tweet. She um, subtweeted. I don't know what that is. Subtweeting, isn't that when you say something about an issue that obviously is a thing but doesn't at anybody actually involved? Also, hopefully with they don't it notice. In. So they will notice, but also you can't be accused of dogpiling or... Okay. Re- it's like pursuing the affectation that you're not reading someone's entire timeline. Yeah. Which is a very weird form of like socialisation yeah. and arguing. It's I don't know, it's weird. Um yeah, the replies went mad. It was like the fucking like Paul Foot, William Reese Mogg memorial horn went off. Mm. And they gathered from miles and miles around. <laughs> Quite a lot of sports reporters. Really? Weirdly enough, yeah. Um so uh I just cherry picked a couple of them because they were really funny. Um, Elizabeth. Well, first off, a- sorry, he is, tr- he is right. Oh well, no, he's correct. The statistics bear him out. Okay, he wrote on. a follow-up article yeah. later on talking about how you know the majority of 
journalists have been to public school and uh, you know a lot of them privately educated more than way more than the national average of mm. I remind you again seven yeah. percent of people in this country have gone to public school and it's something like uh, 43% of newspaper columnists are privately educated and 51% of Britain's top journalists only 19% attended a comprehensive school but it's it's true of like so much um thingy oh there's a story I heard I think it's Tom Hiddleston I think this story's about yeah um, but I might be wrong but someone asking him how to become what's the best route to become an actor yeah and he said Eton mm-hmm. Footlights Rada that's it <laughs> and he said it in a kind of yeah <laughs> and, and that's true it's, it's true of like so much like actually, that route is also the the best route to become a comedy writer for the BBC. Weirdly enough, it's like so true that the newspapers that these journalists write for have written articles on it mm. repeatedly. Yep. There was a report the other day, the Arts Trust, about um, the number of privately educated and uh, upper class people within the arts. It's like sixty one. Oh yeah, but the arts. It was is like over sixty percent. Oh yeah, because they're like they're they're too rational. They they've got this idea of they're. they're you know they've got that little hat, the little t- the little ticket. What's yeah. the ticket for for like newsboys? What is that ticket? I for? guess is it's it like, like a a, I guess it's like a press vest in a war zone. It's yeah, so that it's, you can like. Yeah, but is it like a bus ticket that they have stuck in their fedora? <laughs> like like old timey. Yeah, yeah, I know. And then they rush for the phone. Yeah. They all rush for the phone out of the courtroom. Yeah. And then say, because Finch, he's won his case. Yeah. That's Killer Mockingbird, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There we go. <laughs> um, learning, <laughs> reading. You've Understanding. Bird, I have you? never read To Kill a Mockingbird. How could you tell? Um, some of the responses, naturally, the responses that came out of it were, but I'm not posh. Uh, Elizabeth Ammon, a cricket reporter for the Times. I'm shrugging as hard as I can shrug here. Um, she said, well, I couldn't possibly hope to match your intellect and insight. And obvious, ob, I only got my job in the media because, um, because of um, my tutu from Sheffield Poly. Right now, so she went to a fact, poly, so how, She went to so a polytechnic. Would have that would have been. I mean, I went to an ex-polytechnic university for my BA, hmm. and that was in two thousand and two. I reckon probably mid nineties was when they were started to be converted into proper universities. Mm-hmm. So, so she graduated a long time ago. So there is a significant. Well, uh, I, lo- I looked her up a little bit. Um, she's got a blog. Uh, saying, uh, 2017 was a big year for me professionally. After almost 20 of, after almost twenty years of working in Whitehall, <laughs> I took the brave, some may stu- say stupid, leap into full-time sports journalism. So at the end of March, I left Whitehall for the last time and embarked into the world of newspapers. She has also previously done some work for the BBC and Sky, uh, commentating on cricket matches. But it's like, so you got... And she actually says, like... Um, uh, Oh, you know, this is my first uh, newspaper job, so I really wasn't sure how to do it. And it's like, so how does that link up with your 2-2 from Sheffield? Yeah. Like, specifically, that got you into a government job. Yeah. But how does that link up how with that get you into media? A, is that... it anything to do with you being in government? But how do you get into a government job with a 2-2? Um, back in the day, you could. They, you? you had a separate civil service thing. You had to have a degree. I applied for a civil service um, exam a while ago but mm. you can you could definitely have done it because mm. I mean back then as well they needed there were less people as well they needed more well they needed more people because there were more government departments there was more kind of things before you know they have the bonfire of the quangos and mm. things like that everything all 
everything all yeah. goes away. Um, another guy, um, Neil Custis, a football writer at the Sun, said, "You arrogant! Li- I'm gonna I'm gonna paraphrase here because I imagine this is how he sounds in his own head. You arrogant little twat! I'll work more what's it's off to get you on to get what's on a national it's? newspaper what's through it's? free local papers, and you come <laughs> out with that crap." <laughs> Literally thirty seconds later, somebody replied to Neil yes. and said, uh, "Isn't your brother head of sport at the Sun?" <laughs> Turns out he was. Fucking head hell. of sport content Sean Custis is Neil Custis's older brother. So, hmm. <laughs> uh, popular one was for people to reply to. David Aronovich, of course, oh. came out in his role as the opposite man. Oh, like the I don't. He's, yeah, he's... very Twitter. At the well, moment, yeah, he sits upside down, hanging from the ceiling, mm-hmm. um, with all of his furniture stuck to the ceiling because it, you know, he's not right to sit on the floor like a normal person. He has to do everything opposite. He doesn't drink water; he vomits water. <laughs> he eats for his ass, shits for his mouth. <laughs> opposite man, David <laughs> He said, "Balls, Owen." That doesn't come across. Balls is a difficult one to get across on on Twitter. You can't. You can't swear like that. I you have to say bollocks. Okay, there's the two things. I am, I'm fine with people who don't swear. Yeah, I'm fine with people who swear all the time. Mm. I have a real problem with a specific age of person, a specific type of person mm. that tries to do PG friendly swear words. Yeah, like mediates their swearing so that they can't be blamed. Yeah, as much as a 63 year old upper middle class man can be blamed for swearing on David Aronovich has never been properly held to account for anything otherwise he would not be allowed a Twitter account <laughs> he wouldn't be allowed to leave the house because <laughs> he'd be under house arrest <laughs> he continues there are pockets of everything you describe but yours is a self-pitying Trump-like caricature of the media in Britain which ranges from the BBC to newcomers like BuzzFeed do you know what's really stupid there though Owen Jones is not being a pitying, um, not being like the politics of envy kind of thing. What he did is super damaging to his career. Yes. He took a massive risk speaking up for people who don't have the platform that he does. Yes. Yeah. Not whinging because he doesn't actually, doesn't have the, doesn't have a column in the Guardian, which he does. Yeah. (laughs) But he probably won't have it for long. Um, they won't get rid of it straight away. They'll find an excuse in a year or two. <laughs> well, I mean, David Aronovich got his all his stuff in a you know a very meritocratic manner. He uh, he studied modern history at Balliol College, Oxford. Uh, he was expelled in 1974 for failing the German language section of his history exams. He completed his education at the Victoria University of Manchester, and uh, went straight into a, uh, a job with the BBC <laughs> as a like he was he founded a politics program. You know. You know when you're 34 and you're drifting around and you've like, you got a 2-1 at university and you fall straight into kind of a, an editor's job at the BBC? Could there possibly be a difference between the way David came up and the way somebody trying to come up now? Yeah. Could there be a difference? No, mm. clearly not. The funniest one was like um, Hugo Rifkind. Oh, Riffers. Riffers. Did Hugo Rifkind pretend that his dad is not Malcolm Rifkind? Ah. Because I imagine he spends a lot of time trying to pretend that his dad isn't actually his dad because his dad is a monster and an actual bona fide traitor. <laughs> isn't he? How's he a traitor? What's a... Um, he was selling secret. He was selling um, access and stuff like that. Oh, really? oh That's how yes, he lost of course. his original yeah, yeah. job. 
Because, like, which was why it was really funny when he was accusing Corbin of being a dangerous spy. It's like, well, you, you'd know. <laughs> it's different. He was selling them to our friends. <laughs> don't, I've, I've, don't. <laughs> Look him up. I need to know about this. I remember some kind of sleazy stuff around him, but... In early 2015, Rifkind had discussions with what he thought were representatives of a Chinese company that wanted to set up an advisory council. They turned out to be journalists from Daily Telegraph and Channel 4. He recorded the conversations. <laughs> As a result, he lost the party whip and was suspended. Um, the party whip was suspended um, while it was investigated. And then he had to step down from his position on chairman of the Intelligence and Security Committee. <laughs> <laughs> because not only is he kind of sketchy, but he's also a rube. <laughs> and got tricked by I like to imagine a Channel 4 journalist dressed up like um, when when they do the yellow face in Breakfast at Tiffany's because <laughs> I imagine that would be all it takes to trick Malcolm Rifkind <laughs> like dressed in a like a, a, ro- a bathrobe like... yeah <laughs> yeah literally the, I'm trying, the most racist doing like, a Rooney yeah and that's all it would take but anyway so so Hugo Rifkind was a little more um, circumspect. He appeared to, you know, filter what Owen was saying through his gigantic uh, mind palace. Okay. And uh, he said, Sure, I'm well aware of my advantages and extremely grateful for them. More widely, the media obviously could and should be far more diverse, but that's hard to do with a largely unregulated middle-class profession. For example, Oxford PPE folk, of which I am not, proliferate because the things they are educated to do are the things the media does. Likewise, people with a media background have an obvious head start on navigating the media. So it's much more an existential flaw than anybody going, oh, I'll employ just, I'll just employ another middle-class white dude whose dad vaguely knew my uncle. Now, he's right. He is not an Oxford PPE graduate. He's, he's a not. Cambridge. He is a Cambridge philosophy graduate. <laughs> Don't you dare besmirch my education by implying I did PPE at Oxford. I came up rough. <laughs> the mean I had to ask of my, Cambridge. I had to ask my dad twice. Twice! <laughs> Could you imagine how is, hard it even... is for the son of a Conservative MP to go to Cambridge? Yeah, and, and the thing is, it's not even like it's an active, like... Pump <laughs> fees are expensive! <laughs> it's not even like you can... Like, any sensible person would not necessarily imagine his dad going to a newspaper and saying can you employ my son i could see that happening is it more likely that he like everybody else submitted a cv they saw he went to cambridge and they saw his name and asked are you the son of what paper's going to turn you down if no. you're the son of a conservative mp and you have that kind of access no. he's and like what he was saying was um people with a media background have an obvious head start on navigating the media right well that's what owen was saying uh, Oxford PPE folk proliferate because the thing they're educated to do are the things the media does. Why does the media do those things? Because it's like he's the king of fucking tautological reasoning. Hmm. These things are true because they're true. <laughs> fucking unbelievable. Um, uh, Jane Merrick was a main one. Uh, a lot of people were really, pivoting off. She's. Really, they were a lot of people kind of. Yeah, she's an incredibly odious person. Yeah. Um, Comprehensive school in Liverpool and university in Leeds. I knew no one in journalism when I got into it. Very proud of my achievement of becoming a political editor, age 34. I have no tribal loyalty to any ideology. Nobody tells me what to think or write. 
Well, yes they do. Somebody has. Or you tailor it to what your editor wants because you want to sell your writing. Mm. That's how journalism works. Mm. Like, it's not... They're all acting like it's this noble speak truth to power thing and it's not you unconscious even if you're a freelancer you unconsciously consciously or unconsciously tailor what you're writing to sell because otherwise be, you wouldn't be sell. in you wouldn't be able to make money out of it just won't sell yeah the daily mail's never going to pick up your thing about i don't know um why momentum's good i'm going to pitch why momentum yeah. is good to Paul um, and a positive, and actually, you should all vote for them. I'm going to pitch that to Paul Dacre. He's not. That's a very crude example, mm. but he's not going to commission that. Not no. ever. Um, Immolations on Twitter pointed out something interesting about what Jane Merrick said. She says, "I'm very proud of my achievement of becoming a political editor, age 34." And it's like she doesn't point to any particular work she's done. She doesn't no. point to uh, something that really made a difference or that was very personal to her. She says, "I feel really good that I managed to get a job." Yeah. A big, high status, well paying job. Yeah. It's like he again, he's he's kind of proving your point. Yeah. It's there was um who was I did see someone talking about that there are left wing people, principled left wing people in like oh, yeah. these media. Yeah. Who It was uh, James Ball who used to work at Wikipedia. Um uh not Wikipedia, um WikiLeaks, sorry. Um oh, shopped in Assange. He was one of the people who um, uh, snitched. About what? Um, about, uh, he wanted to protect Chelsea Manning, but gay, I think there was something to do with where they got the, um, like the wiki, the original wiki, like big WikiLeaks leak. Oh, oh so information uh, from. So a bad grass, mm. rather than a good grass mm-hmm. of like pointing out like him being. Yeah, I'd have to check. I'd have to check that up. That's from memory. Okay. But, um, I, I, I think that's the case. He certainly came away from WikiLeaks like a very anti-WikiLeaks person. Yeah, I saw he was being very much. I'm working class. That sort of thing. All of these people, all of these PPE philosophy. I'm going to throw out some more journalism grads, maybe some English literature grads. Mm-hmm. Um, all of these people have a complete lack of understanding of what structural inequality is. Yeah, which is. Surprising, seeing as mm. I know what that is, and I didn't go to university. Mm. They do know what it is, they just deny yeah. that it exists. It's exactly. It, it, they are very good at, and this is one of the problems with, like, ta- like it's why so many kind of otherwise, because they're all socially liberal. None of these people are... Um, In general, they are, yeah. are, con- are, like, very, very conservative. They might have some bits of, like, Catholicism and abortion and, and issues like that. I know... Yeah, they have those kind of things. There is that but range. Really but they're they're, with, they are within the acceptable margin for a, a general working hack. Yeah, it's. Uh, I think the general one is um, be mean to immigrants, but not too mean. Yeah. Legitimate concerns mean. Talk about, talk about the effects that immigrants have on other people as a negative rather than the immigrants themselves. Yeah. Katie Hopkins um, didn't get that message. No. Um, be LGBT positive, yeah. but very anti-poor. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, that kind of thing. But yeah, he was... What was he, saying, he was saying about... So he said... Let me just get it up here. So he said, For lots of people without safety nets, getting into journalism involves massive compromises. In my yes. case, it was working from Crawley, writing about the food manufacturer sector. sector. For less, others, it's less benign. 
Getting in means working on local papers, pushing clickbait, running editorial lines you don't like. The route after that is working at, ma at Mail Online or maybe even The Sun. Great, principled left-wing people end up in those roles all the time. They are not great or principled if they are working for those, those papers. Yeah. The idea that their desire to be a professional news writer... Mm. is significantly more important than the people whose lives are massively fucked over the by idea shit. it's the idea that they're blameless yeah at the same time no, they're following orders yeah at the same but not even like like the thing is there were Nazis who were following orders and if they weren't they were shot do you know what happens to journalists who don't follow the like the party line they get of their shot. bullshit <laughs> no they just go work somewhere else mm. they don't work as journalists because you, but you know what you don't have to be a journalist. I mean, you point out that like the end bit of Owen's uh, tweet was that um, people, a lot of people who get by in their connections, and then he did expand it in a Medium post with the statistics from three different um, studies hmm. on the social makeup, the class makeup of the media sector, the yeah. journalism sector. He backed that up. There was a lot of people going steaming in there saying. I just worked really hard. Yeah. And it's really noticeable that there are two there were two different things. There were I went to a northern comprehensive mm -hmm. 30 years ago mm -hmm. and I went to a northern university. If they didn't go to a northern university, they just omitted that. They just didn't say anything. Which northern university? Durham. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I they're looking at it now where it's uh, entire like it's there's a huge influx of Oxbridge candidates mm. into top jobs. And they're mirroring that back. But you could still get those kind of jobs yeah. like 30 years ago if you went to Durham, which is still a really prestigious, old-fashioned university. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah it's, it's that and Warwick, I think, are the two um, big, like, non-Oxbridge old looking ones, Because then we're looking at all of them. Of course, yeah, it's, yeah. It's Durham at the moment, I think. Mm. Well, for English literature, it's... Yeah, it was like, uh, it was Durham and Warwick mm. when I was looking around at, like, history, history degrees. Mm. Um... And then there seems to be a huge gap. They seem to really want to go into detail about their education yeah. and their home life. Okay. But not about how they actually got into journalism. They and you know what? That bit. I'm sure that there was hard work involved. Working yeah. hard, everybody fucking works hard. Everybody has to. Otherwise you get shit canned. Yeah. That that is a given. Mm. But what, that's not what Owen was saying. Owen no. was not saying they didn't work hard. They said that they got opportunities that they wouldn't have gotten had they not had certain advantages, like going to Oxford, having rich parents, or being born in nineteen eighty, uh, being born in like nineteen seventy two. Mm. Mm. That is a distinct advantage. Fucking ridiculous. Um, there's one last example because I wanted that. This will kind of like. It's a bit more of a middling example and makes it more obvious about the basic problem with UK media. Mm -hmm. So Kate McCann, she's a reporter at The Telegraph. Mm -hmm. She used to be at The Guardian. Uh, she said, like Jane Merrick and others, I went to comprehensive school in Yorkshire and university in Newcastle. Had no friends or family in journalism and worked hard to get this job. But I assume she was saying, oh, well, of course, that doesn't make me an exception. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, she was a parliamentary researcher for a Tory MP when she started, um, which she emailed the MP and the MP gave her a job out of university. She, uh, yeah, like I say, she was a reporter at The Guardian, at City AM and a Whitehall reporter for The Sun and oh, she's now... City AM was so bad. Yeah. 
Um, and she's now at the Telegraph, right? Now, she's an interesting one because she's not an opinion writer. Mm-hmm. She is just a, a, I don't know what you would, a reporter. Mm-hmm. She files stories that go in the she front. She wears the hat with the In the front it. 17 pages. She wears the hat, yeah. Yeah, and goes to the rotary phone. Yep, she goes to the rotary phone and says... Owen Jones has got a hot take. <laughs> <laughs> it's spicy, I tell you. <laughs> um, I went through her articles mm-hmm. on Journalisted. The article she published for The Telegraph mm. and the article she uh, filed for The, the, the Guardian. Uh, Guardian is like um, a lot on tackling youth unemployment, local government heroes, uh, the gender gap widening at the top of business, um, NHS failing poorer patients, postcode lottery, a lot on local government, that kind of thing. Yeah. Right? She goes to The Telegraph and a lot of her stories, her, her, it's weird, her like focus of interest of the stories that she definitely was independently writing yeah. suddenly changed. Corbyn refuses to confirm if he'll kneel before Queen. <laughs> Corbyn refuses to confirm if he'll wear white tie to state dinner. John McDonnell signed letter calling for MI5 and armed police to be disbanded. Council bosses earning as much as footballers. And it's like, you didn't choose to write those things. You're not independent. Why is there that dramatic shift in tone? You know, it's the um, every Telegraph article sounds like a Telegraph article. Yeah. Every Guardian article sounds like a Guardian article. There's something to do with house style, but there's also to do something to do with a literal editorial line. Yeah, there's it's well, it's the um, it's pretending that there isn't thing. that. Yeah, um, like it's um, think because watched. I'm not blaming her. No, no, no. That's the thing. You know, yeah, it's a um, it's, it's a, a job. Thing. It's that's the job. Yeah, there was um thingy um, manhunt Unibomb. Yeah, um, there's a bit in that where one of the ways they catch. Um, Ted Kaczynski hmm. is the his use of language and his some of his spellings yes. was based on an editorial line of how words were supposed to be spelt in this specific paper that was sold in this specific region of America. Yeah, um, and it was like sayings like I think it was the um, eat your cake and have it rather than have your cake and eat it. Yeah, and there was like there was some weird spellings of words, mm. and to pretend that. When you have journalists saying like, "Oh no, no one tells me what to say," it's like I'm mm. pretty certain they probably still have little, not probably not as extreme as it was in the olden days of journalism, mm. but there definitely is a theme editorial yeah. line because otherwise, everyone who works at the Daily Mail is a literal monster. Yeah, and I don't think they are. I think a lot of them. I think there's more people at the Daily Mail who are complicit in monstrosity. Yeah. Did one journalist um, choose that at the Times, choose that story about, you know, the um, Muslim family adopting the uh, mm. white girl? Yeah. Did uh, did one journalist choose to pursue that? Or did they put it on a desk and say, we're really going to go for it and this is how we want you to spin it? More importantly, did they then decide, did that one reporter decide to run it on the front page for four days mm-hmm. with extra details? Yeah. Did the reporter decide that? No, they didn't. The editors decided it. It's, um, it's that thing, though, that the reason why the journalists all got so angry about all this is because, in general, people don't like it when you point out how, they're, how they benefited from their privilege. Yeah. Um, they feel very attacked, and they instinctively attack back. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just funny that journalists, these amazing wordsmiths, all use the exact same language. Yeah, they were all saying, no one tells me what to think. And it's just like, oh God, you're all terrible. You're like, This is your literal job. This like, is your job. Your job is to write things, and all of you are exactly the same. Yeah. 
there's a self there's it's self-evident that there is a homogeneity of views you can see by the way that for instance i think somebody pointed out dan hodges mm-hmm. when um nick timothy went off twitter for i can't remember what he did it was literally last week he got called out for lying because he That's said right, that, yeah he said that theresa may heard she didn't know about the go home vans mm. And it turned out that she did, and she specifically made a break in a holiday to make sure the language was nastier. <laughs> because so, Theresa May is just so great at being Theresa May. <laughs> if ever there was anyone born to play the role of nastier, spiteful, more incompetent Thatcher, yeah, <laughs> it's Theresa May. First as Thatcherity, and then as Thatcher farce. Something yes. like that. <laughs> First as tragedy, then as farce, that yeah. kind of thing. Cut that other bit, that was bollocks. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, you can see that like their response to it was not a political one. Like you can see that there's a homogeneity of views mm. among what's happened because for the first time in many many years there's been an actual difference between the political parties and there has been a split and the way that they've reported it the way it's been reported in the mainstream media has been really self-evident that a lot of people have a lot of editors have standing opinions that they are not prepared to revise about the nature of politics and the response of all these journalists to it is a social one they are defending not their political opinions no. because they feel no need to, because they're self-evident, or because everybody shares them, that centrist kind of yeah, delusion. that's the worst thing about you them all. You can, you can it's all yeah, normal. You can see the fact that they admit, like, he was getting very kind of macro about it and quoting statistics, and they got very personal. They were defending their social class, mm. their particular subclass, like, sub-shard of the, mm. the commentariat, ruling class, whatever you, whatever you want to call mm. it. Um... And you can see it from things like, um, you know, car parks and universal benefits. It's like the it was the response to all those kind of things when Labour's manifesto came out, like mm. the car parks thing or the the universal benefits, like the baffling ones, mm. the ones that don't go well. I don't agree with it because I don't agree with funding this thing because that's against my ideology. They weren't going out with that. No, no, no. They were going out with things like, you know, two hundred thousand pounds a year is not rich. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the really obvious uh, people earning uh, what was it, seventeen thousand pounds, are middle class. <laughs> There's such an obvious disconnect between them that it's not that hard to see where the group think comes from. Hmm. Like perfect example of that. I didn't realise this until recently. So Stig Abel, yeah, yeah, used to be editor of the. In fact, used to be on LBC, didn't he? Hmm. Yeah. Well, he's on LBC now. Um, uh, no, uh, is he still on LBC? Yes. Right, okay. He started on LBC and The Sun, right? Okay. Became editor of The Sun. Yeah. And around the time he quit from The Sun, he started doing Radio 4. Did he? Yeah. And he's producing, like, uh, like reading lists. Oh, I saw that. Did it's... you see the article about... I, I the, saw his reading list. Which the, the reading list for Understanding Britain. Um, I... Okay. I'm not... I'm really not, a, like, a, a book snob. I'm not at all. I, my main genre of books I read is fantasy, <laughs> um, ranging from proper sword and sorcery <laughs> stuff to D and D rule books yeah. all the way through to, to Pathfinder rule books. To, I do, I do read some of the fancy of high fantasy stuff, which is a bit harder. And I do read some proper smart books. Yeah, his books were so middle of the road. That's the thing. It's like I don't he have put nineteen eighty four on there. I don't have a problem with anyone reading pretty much anything, but. To talk about, like, if you're going to go, oh, this is my my cracker list to really get you to understand things. Yeah, 
1984. You're going to have to like tell me something different that I'm not going to see on a Reddit reading list. Yeah. If, and he's written a book about how to understand Britain, hasn't he? Yeah, he's got a book out, uh, the thing, like, how Britain really works. Oh. But the interesting thing is, you think about the social milieu that that particular media is marketed at. So yeah. when he's at The Sun, he commissions Katie Hopkins, because that's what they want. That's yeah. what they love. Yeah. Give them some more of that. And gives, comes out of that... Compl- a big tick of approval to call him migrants cockroaches. Yeah. Comes out completely blameless, mm. apparently. Nothing happened to him. He went straight yeah. into a job with the Times Literary Supplement. Yep. Um, and so now he's got to try and be highbrow. And it just shows you there's a kind of... This isn't to do with... They're not independent thinkers. They are not bringing anything to the table. They're adapting to the circumstances that they're put in, which are increasingly bound from the outside and isolated, which is exactly what Owen Jones was saying. Yeah. And we talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Squawk Box and Canary. Like, I've got some sympathy for the idea that you would need an alternative media mm-hmm. that can think the unthinkable. I mean, for what it's worth, I don't think Canary or Squawk Box think the unthinkable except in very problematic ways. <laughs> um, but you can see the desire to break yeah. out of that kind of thing. Definitely. And it, there's nothing wrong with what Owen said. And no. good good on him. Like, yeah, and he's taken such a risk. More risk than any of those people have taken. Yeah. It's Yeah. Yeah. You know, Aronovich can go on and on about him taking a risk supporting the Iraq war, but you know, when you've got billions of dollars and all of the top politicians and parliament behind it, mm. it's not a risk. No. Except <laughs> to Iraqis. Yeah. Exactly. Our second subject this week, mm-hmm. it's been St George's Day, which was yesterday. The day that no one's allowed to celebrate that was banned. It was banned um by our Muslimic queen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she banned all celebrations. Shit, Tonty Blair. Yeah. Um, oh, fucking hate George's Day. It's 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 predictable in the same way that Poppy that Poppy Day is in that the main way the English have of celebrating St George's Day is to complain about not getting to celebrate St George's no, that Day. Is, no, I realise that that isn't what they complained about. They're complaining about other people not celebrating it with them. Yeah. Because they'll always bring up how they celebrate Paddy's Day. It's like, well, it's just because you're all alcoholics. Yeah. Um, you take a day off. And also, you, the English people take a day off yeah. for St Patrick's Day. Also, I don't think you're really being nice about the Irish when you're dressed in green and celebrating the Irish by drinking yourself blackout drunk and vomiting in front of an O'Neill's. <laughs> I don't think that that's truly... There is nothing more traditional <laughs> than that. <laughs> After eating a lasagna and chips, <laughs> drinking seven pints of like lukewarm Guinness and vomiting up outside of an O'Neill's by a roundabout. When you never drink Guinness the rest of the year yeah. and move on to silently move on to harp halfway <laughs> through the evening because you can't drink seven pints of Guinness because it's like eating a cow. I love it. I can. I mean, you can, well, but you was, did it because you liked it. There are so many people who drink Guinness on St. Patrick's Day that well, don't to be drink fair, I like, There's year. a lot of stuff that, you know, my food and the stuff I drink, which is based on the fact that I smoked nearly 100 grams of um, Old Holborn a week for since I was, what, 15? <laughs> so there's an awful lot of food that I eat, which is based solely around the fact that I don't have sense of taste. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it's the so, day that the English celebrate, you know, getting rid of the dragon. So we big are, problem, dragons. The thing, we're you're English. So full disclosure, I am English, but, and it's the smallest but you could possibly have, 
which is my mum's, uh, like uh, my grandparents are from Ireland and like recent immigrants from mm. Ireland. This isn't a few, a few, this is obviously... It's not fit, like it's an American-Irish situation. Yeah, it's not, I mean, it's not three generations. Like I, my mum had certain Irish uh, traditions when we were growing up. I would always wear a pin for St. Patrick's Day. But other than that, completely English. Never had much sympathy for the English as a whole, but I am English, like functionally English. Yeah. Um, you also... Well, I'm Welsh. You're I'm, Welsh, and I know there's. But like, you were raised that, you know, in England. A, well, you know, there's a, that right. um, that mixed race thing of um, people, like mixed race people in general, don't like to be referred to as half this and half that. Yeah. Because it um, it minimises. It dilutes. Yeah. The, and that's not true. <laughs> well, yeah. Di- well, it's, yeah. it's a sense. Well, saying half is a sense of diluting yeah. it. Like you're not as much of so and so as something else. But um, my mum is very English. And my dad is not. And I very much want to dilute that English. <laughs> so I am half English. But then my mum wasn't born in England because that's how English she was. She was born in Kenya. Um, <laughs> it's funny how the most British or the most English people, you know, Dan, uh, Dan, I was about to say Dan Harmon, um, Dan Hannon. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> they never born here. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I was, yeah, I wasn't born here. I was born in Cardiff, uh, yeah. but yeah, but moved here when my parents were like, parents had to move around to get work. Yeah, um, but yeah, raised here. Um, very much aware of not being English for the vast majority of my well, actually my entire life, mm. because I have a very Welsh name, very Welsh spelt name. Yeah, teachers would always bring it up on the first day of the year. <laughs> it's always fun. Yeah, it's very fun growing up in the Medway towns, being constantly <laughs> reminded that you're different. <laughs> it's definitely fun, <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't like the English really. Yeah, um, growing up with, <laughs> growing up in the Medway towns gives you a specific view of the Blood Cross because you only ever see it on the side of a van, sun bleached. You know, like when um, easy there, the Emily Thornbury. What's the thing when Emily yeah. Thornbury did that thing? Yeah, it's like it, it, and people are like, oh my god, look at her being sneery. It's like, no, I know what road she was down. Yes. They're, it, they're just lucky that, you know, she just sent a picture of that rather than, if you pan just to the left a bit, probably a swastika. Um, Certainly a gollywog. Yes. Mm. Um, but yeah, I've sort of, the, what is that, by Rochester Station, I remember for a, for a significant amount of time, there was, a, there was a flat that you could see as you came out of the old Rochester Station. Yeah. And they had England flags and BMP post posters all up in the windows. Yeah. And that's the blood cross, really. Yeah. Because it is the blood cross. It's a disgusting symbol that is only ever used by the worst people. <laughs> um, well, Nigel Farage, I think he tweeted at like 10 in the morning outside of a pub holding a beer up. Outside, it was called George and the Dragon. And it's like, oh. oh. The thing is, I don't even think he was actually there that morning. I think he was just like, <laughs> stop That being said, I don't think Let he me just was. pull I, one I out have... of the camera roll. <laughs> yeah. But the thing is, I could see him drinking at that time of day. And it's not to besmirch anyone drinking that early. Done it plenty of times. Um, <laughs> Some of our formative bonding experiences are sitting in front of pubs waiting for them to open. <laughs> but yeah, the the celebration of St George is a is a weird one. It's the most empty for all of the attempts to fill it with meaning. Yeah, it's one of the most empty kind of things. Leaving aside for a second the notion of Englishness, mm-hmm. um, the actual kind of cross itself and the story of of like St George and the political story of how it became to be like the patron saint of England and everything. Well, there's two St. George's. Yes. There is 
the one who was born in what modern day Syria or Turkey? Uh, somewhere he had a Palestinian mother. He was born in Turkey, I think, supposedly. Yeah, yeah and he was in the Roman. He was a Roman soldier, mm-hmm. and he's revered by Muslims, Jews, and Christians. Yeah, and is generally a nice guy. Mm. And then there's the Saint George of England. Yeah, who curb stomped a dragon because it spoke with a funny accent. Um, <laughs> who is always daubing graffiti next to the Chinese takeaway when they kick him out. Um, that kind Guilty of, of uh, extinguishing dragon voices. <laughs> Just sitting here trying to have an open and honest discourse around fire breathing and maiden snatching. <laughs> you don't see him doing that to the Wivens. That's what I'm saying. That's a good point. You know? To be fair, if you're going to think of a national animal for the English, it would be one with a poisonous sting. <laughs> Sitting on a pile of gold. <laughs> do wyverns sit on a pile of gold? Uh, wyverns don't, but dragons do. Yeah, that's what I said. Not wyverns would be that one. Oh, right. You and your I fantasy adults. This is why you should read monster compendiums more. <laughs> God damn it! <laughs> I give you these reading lists to understand my references. Next, you're going to tell me you don't know the difference between a knoll and a kobold. You really don't, do you? You sicken. I me. have a vague notion that one's a go- goblin. No, we're going to move on from that. We're going to talk about other imaginary things, like um, the veneration of a magic man and the English. Yeah, <laughs> but yeah. So they've got the, this. So this. I've saw a lot of liberal people on Twitter hmm. doing the thing of posting at racists about how yeah. you know. Oh, actually, St George is this, this, and this. It doesn't matter. Mm. And their responses, racist responses, were always like yawn. True English patriots with names like Himmler fourteen eighty eight, um, always like yawn, don't care that kind of stuff because they've got their own George. They've got the George who's the racist. They've got the one who slayed a dragon and all that kind of crap. Mm. And that's their truth. That's their 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 creation. You know, like um, yeah, American gods wasn't the first to do it. But that notion of, you know, conjuring something into being from sheer belief. Mm. Um, yeah, yeah, that's what they've got with it. I mean, that's something like, I would, uh, in preparation, I would read... <laughs> in preparation, I re- reread um, Benedict Anderson's um, Imagine Communities. Mm-hmm. And he kind of talks about how it's paradoxical, the fact that um, most nation-states are new. Nationalism is very new yeah. as a polit- form of political organisation. Mm-hmm. But requires a kind of reaching back to antiquity to provide evidence yeah. for the kind of ancientness of um, of your nation. Um, I had it with um, rereading um, The City in the City recently because of the BBC doing it. Mm. The stuff with Ilcomo and their um, their constantly um, their archaeological digs yeah. for this ancient, ancient civilization which they claim ownership over. Mm. It's that kind of crap. Mm. And it's, a, it's an intentionally, I mean... You can think of sort of like nationalism where everyone is supposed to have a nationality in the mm. same way that like everyone's supposed to have a gender or, mm. you know. But they're still incredibly powerful symbols, but even despite the fact that they're so incoherent. Mm-hmm. Like he uses one example of like, if you tried to ascribe an inherent meaning to nationalism, it would be like um, filling the tomb of the unknown soldier with an actual dead soldier. Yeah. You know? So. Yeah. It kind of remains very difficult to define Englishness. A lot, I see a lot of people trying to do it with um, uh, consumer goods. 
Hmm. basically reflecting the fact that we're all just consumers and that seems yeah. to be the main way that we're supposed to portray nationalism so you have the you know the gin the beer the museums old things hmm. the english things exclusively like old things but it's not enough because another part of the national thing is policing borders so you hmm. either have to be english or you have to be something else that's the way nationhood works and you can see like a lot of there's been a kind of quite a few attempts from left-wingers or progressives to give themselves like a patriotic mantle you just threw up all over the microphone don't throw up over the microphone whenever i say the word progressive patriot i do not like the term progressive patriot especially when it comes to people who wrap themselves in the blood cross or the butcher's apron (laughs) because they are they will they always cut out certain bits about the history. Well, the best thing, like people talk about kind of the um, transference of uh, England and Britain. Mm-hmm. So Britain is supposed to be every, like the British Isles. So it's supposed to be, you know, Scotland, Wales and England together in an imperial state. And Ireland. And Ireland. Um, and Jersey. <laughs> and all, those, all the... And oh, the Orkneys. The terrible little islands. And the Virgin Islands. Terrible. And the NTBs. And Diego Garcia. <laughs> they love islands. Stupid Just British. want more. Um, but yeah, it's supposed to, it's supposed to encompass like England yeah. and the Celtic nations. Yeah. So they've like, and and at least. in many ways, like my partner, um, I've mentioned is f- uh, from a kind of a, a Indian heritage, mm-hmm. is of Indian heritage, and she finds British a lot easier to deal with than English. Because British can mean you can move into it hmm. and move out of it. It's actually, in many ways, a more cosmopolitan identity than um, Englishness. Mm-hmm. And yet, this idea of Englishness won't go away among left wing circles and things. You've got um, Blue Labour and the English Labour Network. Oh, yeah, you were saying um, stuff in the English Labour Network. Oh, yeah. God. Um, so, like, the, they've had. I know Ed Miliband had a big had a big pop at it, you know, England for the English, English Parliament, all those kind of things, without actually saying anything. Well, they don't need it. They, they've got one. Um, trying to shoehorn, like, even, like, you pass over consumer goods because, I mean, like, Germany has beer. Um, plenty um, of places have pasty-like things. Um, to you be know, fair, you can't though, reduce... Like, as someone who's drunk a lot of beer around the world, mm. um, British beer is particularly unique in its... Um, like some people really just like just can't mm. get on with a two and a half percent bitter. But if mm. I was going to say the thing that's traditionally British out of all of the beers, mm. it's a two and a half percent bitter that you can drink for days. I don't even know that that is because you like you don't you've get that got... in Belgium or Germany. You don't. Um, you don't get. You don't it get. Must no, exist. no, no, no. Um, not to the, not to the same extent. The session bitter mm. is peculiar, like specifically a very much an industrial revolution thing. Yeah. Um, watered down beer yeah. at the same price. Well, yeah, it's like um, um, <laughs> Porter was invented during the Industrial yeah, Revolution yeah. and all that kind of shit. Um, but it's not it's not enough to build a national identity of it. Like the yeah. traditional... We were talking about before we start, um, started recording, um, the like foods. Hmm. When they try and... Like specifically empire countries that had a big empire... When they try and claim like a food is inherently theirs, yeah. like fish and chips, chicken tikka, even. Well, yeah. actually, chicken tikka, chicken tikka is actually a good one because then at least it wears its origin on its sleeve. Because yeah, you can't sure. pretend that that chicken tikka was born 
literally like it was I think it was like South Wales yeah um, but you can't pretend that they just happened upon cardamom <laughs> like in a copper mine <laughs> but um, somebody like, was carrying the chicken and somebody was uh, trafficking uh, from the car- from the cardamom mines <laughs> and they were going along the road at night they didn't have their headlights on they smashed and the Into two drivers the two drivers went through the windscreens <laughs> And were covered in, in both chilli powder and chicken. And then it was forced into their mouths when they were waiting for the paramedics. That That's right. the story of chicken tikka, my friends. But um, like fish and chips, though. Yeah. Which is a mixture of Portuguese, North American, Belgian. Yeah. <laughs> All these like things. But um, the sense... So you, when they try and build a national identity, it's so weird. But you can't... like The reason why they choose... Things like that yeah. is because we're a consumerist society. Yeah, you build it based on consum- consumable objects. Mm. In the same way as ultimately the English Labour Network's attempts to um, produce some kind of political settlement, settlement for England and England alone yeah. is stymied by the fact that they don't actually propose any political changes. No. Well, there There's is the- occasionally an English Parliament, but you know what the English Parliament is. It's just called Parliament. Yeah, that's the thing. It's, it's so insane. You see it like, like the people who talk up the idea of an English parliament of people like Nigel Farage. And yeah. um, the, the thing that they'll complain about is, oh, because people in Scotland, can, um, MPs in Scotland can vote on stuff that happens in England, and people in, MPs in Wales can vote on what happens in England. And that's not fair, because we can't vote on stuff that happens there. It's like, we well, can. Yeah. You do. You do. You do. You do. Every literally time you all the time. Election. And, you know, you can just throw rocks into Wales and hit English, M- English people who are MPs in mm. Wales. But... Um, like yeah, the, I think uh, it's, it's, it's I, such a dumb idea the notion of an English parliament. The interesting, it's more productive to think of it from the other point of view. So mm. think of it in the reverse. What problem is Englishness supposed to solve for our society right now, mm-hmm. and for Labour or for left lefties or liberals in particular? Right. Yeah. The problem with like Blue Labour was at its most popular during Ed Miliband's when they had a declining. They lost you know five million working class votes. Yeah. The corner they had painted themselves into with Blairism was that they couldn't make any long-term massive changes to the economy because oh. they had ideologically cornered themselves out of that market. Yeah. So the second step from these people proposing a consumerist ideology of what it is to be British, what you consume, is to make it into an advertising problem. Mm-hmm. So it's like, well... If you can drape yourself, if you can say the right things, if you can sell the idea to people that's English, which also, by the way, undermines the idea that there's something intrinsically English that people's needs aren't being satisfied by. Yeah. Um, like, and the big problem is that that territory has been entirely taken by the Tories. Uh, there's a Stuart Hall book, The Great Moving Right Show. Okay. He talks about how Thatcher, the great success of Thatcher and her brand of neoconservatism and neoliberalism, her great success was wedding it to something that people could could touch, that people could point to in their everyday social experience. Mm. So she wedded notions of Englishness to law and order, mm-hmm. to a certain racial um, notion of Englishness, mm-hmm. um, kind of a moral outlook, mm. and, you know, Churchillism, that kind of thing, like rigid unbending, awkward. And so she married that into her own personal style and claimed that ground. Hmm. Labour could not claim that ground. Even, I mean, Labour have always had those kind of problems 
in perception just because they're an international they well right. say they're an internationalist party they have internationalist history and yeah. an internationalist link but you can't just move into that territory by thinking that it's a fixed territory mm. the problem with all of that labor moving in like labor being more english is that for a start most people now especially in 2018 in scotland let's say yeah. think of labor as english yeah um increasingly from listening to desolation radio i think that's probably going to be the the opinion of people who vote in wales no no do you not think that's true i think you'd have to i think you'd have to have a spree of Welsh Labour MPs going on murders. You'd have to have a load of them going on murders please, <laughs> to get people to stop vote Labour. Like, I'm going up to Aberdeer soon. Yeah. And I can guarantee you, um, they 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 do think of it as as, as English. Yeah. Um, but they also think of pliers. Hoity-toity, fancy Welsh. <laughs> but yeah, it's, it's, like, Scotland, they've managed to win that, of um, painting Labour as solely an English thing. I mean, you could see... You they're could starting see. to lose out now, and I think they are going to start to lose out yeah. because they're starting to show more, you know... Yeah, like but, you... Because Corbyn's Labour is making... It's saying the right things. It's making, it's a, not, un, it's making it's, a universal case over the heads. Yeah, even if it's not properly that. doing it yet. Yeah, yeah. It's at least making the right yeah. sounds. But, like, going back to, to Thatcher, hmm. um, she ties up those things like things like um labor councils so you can paint labor councils as, un- as un-english inner city councils as somehow un-english or yeah. mad by the the standards of a supposedly sane like moral majority like moral like a silent majority yeah um so you can you can combine a load of different things you can say well inner city councils are the loony left yeah loot because they're running say um racial equality uh, things yeah. or uh, what was the one that was in the it was in the Sun years ago um, the like lesbian bereavement center or something it was one yeah. of those made up kind of loony left yeah. stories but there's a narrative tied up with that whereby you can paint Labour as associated with the other and the Tories associated with England and that's the territory you find yourself on now it has shifted hmm. somewhat since then but you can't just roll up to the Tories territory and take it whole cloth hmm. without either you just become a Tory, in which yeah. case the Tories can do it better. Yes. Or you just sound vapid. You just yeah. sound like you just sound lightweight. Yeah. You know? There is a something in like Benedict Anderson's whole thesis about nationalism is that the rise of nation states is bound up with the written word. Mm-hmm. So you have originally all written languages are in Latin. It's a, a multi, multi-territory multi language that mm. rules over the whole thing. But you have the advent of capitalism and the mass printing press. Yeah. And with that, you get the ability to print in local languages, in vernacular, mm-hmm. um, local dialects. And once you have that, you if you have a, a state that controls a certain territory, they can also control through the use of like censorship and mm. officially mandated like um, presses and things like that. You can start to change that language. So mm. it seems like there's a lot of people who've tried to do that same thing. They've tried to appropriate the language of nationalism mm. and turn it to their own particular end. So like you can see the Tories now when they've tried to be more liberal, they talk about like tolerance and fair play yeah as if their inherent british characteristics mm. 
and should they mean English? Hmm. They don't. They they don't mean the oh, Scottish or the Welsh. When, when Tories actually, when anyone talks about Britishness, hmm. they do mean English. Hmm. Um, and you can say that because what about what is inherently Britishness? Hmm. British is Irish, Scottish, or Welsh? Yeah, I can't think of a single thing that they say is British. Well, a better idea would be to just approach people on the territory of the way that they live their lives, like. Yes. If it's so hard to define Englishness, yeah. if it's so difficult to do it without these very empty, very advertising style symbols, then isn't it kind of redundant? Mm-hmm. If nobody, nobody can, people can say they feel English, mm. but if there's nothing specific they can point to, if there's nothing they can define, then isn't it kind of being left behind by well, history? The thing is- in the same way that you would have left behind your your kind of like your national characteristic in like kind of uh, pre-capitalist like feudal yeah. eras would be you had you were ruled by a particular dyna- dynastic state. Yeah, you were ruled by a family. Interestingly enough, that's how St George comes into um, the English like national characteristic because yeah. it was one of um, I think it was one of Henry VIII's favorite saints because you know Rockard lad. Yeah, and that. <laughs> um, so you. Pledge allegiance to a particular royal family. Yeah. Um, there's no notion that you are your beyond a local context. Mm. There's no notion that you are have anything like somebody in um, Plymouth doesn't have anything particularly in common with someone in Newcastle, mm. other than the fact that they are ruled over by this like dynastic state. And if you don't pay your taxes, someone's going to come around and smash your head in. Yeah. You know. There's, um, the thing when people do say English, they do. It's, they do mean white. Yeah, that's, that's the, thing, the like, other, the the other complicated about, thing. Like, there's a thing you're saying about your partner, like, um, and that's the difference. Like, when people, there are lots of people who say they feel British, like yeah. of all kinds of all kinds of ethnic backgrounds. Yeah. Um, everyone I know who says they, f- everyone I know, everyone I've seen who's ever said that they feel English, they're always one. They're always very specifically, and it just, that doesn't help that I live of where we where we live. They tend to be from Essex, <laughs> and my my problem with Essex that's that's a thing for being brought up in Kent. Yeah, Essex. Yeah, we were looking at houses in Essex at some point for a, a potential. Maybe one day we'll own a house. Where would we like to live? Wouldn't be your friend anymore. Um, and I can't. I can't bear it. I oh. can't bear the idea of moving to Essex. I just can't. It's the most obvious place because mm. it's like quite close to where we are now. Mm. But I, can't, I just can't. I just can't do it. It's a bad place. But you see, uh, one of the things that comes along with the blue labour thing mm-hmm. is uh, railing against multiculturalism. Yeah. So, yeah, there is an element where even ethnic... Like, they've tried to shoehorn... I think they've learnt from the way that it was received by the kind of liberal intelligentsia mm. at the time, and they've started to kind of try and drop the the uh, the anti-multiculturalism thing. But there have been attempts to kind of shoehorn... The, exactly the same things that they were trying to express in a modern British identity hmm. and shoehorn it into English. I think there's even probably a problem with trying to define English as like ethnicity hmm. because you get so close to the uh, the Prince Charles thing this week oh, um, gosh, yeah. of uh, him going up to that woman and saying that, um, where are you really from? Oh, when she said she was from Manchester, was, and you you pointed out, I think that the there LBC was, there was commentator. a person who phoned in on LBC. That was so good. Like every time, I like I try and not listen to LBC because it's just full of racists. 
but it's really compelling because it's full of racists. <laughs> and this bloke phoned up and was like, well, she's not Mancunian because Mancunian means Anglo-Saxon. And I think it would be okay to question blacks and Asians when they misrepresent themselves like this. Like you get it all the time with black people saying that they're brummies. And it's like, oh my God. <laughs> like the idea of like, actually, I think you'll find pull out my calipers. <laughs> the also, slope of his brow means that he is technically not a Mancunian. The whole idea as well, p- picking that particular word, Anglo-Saxon fever came up during the 19th century of uh, the British trying to find their deep racial roots. Again, the high point of Englishness or Britishness as a national ethnic identity. Yeah. Um, Manchester was part of, I mean, Manchester was a tiny village at that mm. point, if it even existed at all. Mm. Um, it was part of fucking Dane law. It was Viking. It was Scandinavian. It was not. It was certainly probably melded. Yeah. But it's not purely Anglo-Saxon, mm. especially as north as it is and as far west as it is. Mm. I mean, fuck it. There's probably quite a bit of Celt in there as well. well also, whole, Irish. This whole country is a mess of everything of because t- we're an island next to, be to fair, a massive continent full of people who like to go around the place. Where do you think we learned it? We learned it from you, Europe. <laughs> I just don't like to play that game at all and no, it's, it's more interesting to you look into kind of people who talk about Englishness a yeah. lot and the whole Anglo-Saxon thing is never very far behind no. that's why you can't appropriate it in any possible way it might be fully toxic so that's like you can't really talk about it you can probably talk about it on an economic basis but you're talking about London mm. Um you are maybe talking about the industrial heritage of areas in the north and places like that, but oh, but in general, in two thousand eighteen, what when people that doesn't have a thing. notions of English and mm. the English countryside, if they if it even includes places like the southwest or Yorkshire, it's an empty one. It's just a, mm. like it's a it's a landscape painting. It's not the people there. Yeah, but again, the that's people a... of the people of England are the home counties. Well, also a primarily urban people. Like yeah. you look at portrayals of Englishness in the nineteenth century, mm-hmm. it's a romantic reaction to the industrialism that's yeah. going on and the the kind of ugly pollution of what what was happening there. Definitely. Um, so you can see it's uh, so much of it is constructed. I mean, we've got down to like economics, um, <clears throat> consumption, uh, ethnicity, and imagery hmm. of being English. All of which are contradictory, incoherent, and em- ultimately empty of meaning. Mm. Um, you, there's been there was a lot of written in the like late nineties about how globalization was starting to erode nation states, and you can see the kind of you can see a lot of national parliaments, especially in the West, like putting up borders and things, mm. trying to f- maybe physically define the nation. Yeah. In terms of you, you even had uh, I think it was Labour MPs talking about internal passports at one point of uh, having internal passports to keep um, new immigrants in London rather than having them go out to. Oh, on a sidebar, did you see other pieces? Did you see Jackie Smith saying that if they'd um, brought in um, ID cards mm-hmm. like she wanted, mm. that all of this Windrush stuff never would have happened? Fuck oh, Yeah. Oh god, it is. It's the thing. Like for all the like kind of worries that sometimes have about Corbynism and yeah. where the Corbyn project and where it's going, it is so nice to not have those people any like <laughs> being relegated to the obscurity of podcasts <laughs> to 
to vent their bullshit. <laughs> um, and I think that's the. Isn't that the? I think she did it on the podcast that she has with you, Dale. <laughs> is she still in? Is she still an MP? I don't care. <laughs> <laughs> I could give less of a shit. I find it hard enough to care about active Labour MPs, let alone ones that are on the backbenches. <laughs> But yeah, you're talking about like yeah, ID cards yeah. to prove. I mean, relevant to the conversation, like, um, ID cards to prove that you're English, that you're a member of this sure, nation state. Like, I'm sure, Ollie was telling me um, that they had that in Japan. Yeah. For like traveling between little like f- prefectures and stuff like that. Really. Yeah. For like everyone. Mm. I'm sure I might be wrong, but um, it's a it's a mad idea. It's in it's. Yeah, it's just the amount of effort that people go into. There's there is something to be said, maybe not for Englishness as such. There's probably a lot to be said for the effort to make England a thing mm. as distinct from Britain, as mm. we've talked about, like ID cards, the idea for internal passports. The notion of passports themselves is a huge like Brexit thing. Yeah, um, and you get to the point in a historical sense where you're looking at a certain mode of organisation certain mode of state action, you're looking at it and it's like the amount of sheer effort and resources that goes in to defining something that can't, like in physical terms, that can't define itself Mm. as to why it exists. Yeah. You know, like I don't, I think like there's probably going to be a comeback of regional identities once this kind of, once this particular like weird postmodern strain of nationalism goes, I think the only thing you really have to fall back on is maybe locality. And that's not because actually I think as a country, there's more connection than ever. Like you can go to any town and your experience will be largely the same Hmm. because of a kind of monolithic homogenous capitalism. You're reading the same websites. Hmm. You are going to the same shops. Hmm. You're spending your time in largely the same ways you might have a different accent, although, as I understand it, there's a lot of regional accents that are starting to meld into into one. Yeah. Um, there has, there has been a difference, of, a disappearance of that. You get over a mixture of like immigration from outside the country and then just in migration, in, internal migration. Yeah, yeah, like um, students going to a place and staying there. I the, imagine, um, I imagine, like fifty years ago, the accent in Nottingham was very different to what it is now. Yeah, I, th- there's still a significant amount of like Nottingham speakers, but you still get yeah. quite a lot of the. I can't remember what they called it, but the um, the Thames estuary through to Bristol, um, stopping before Bristol, mm. <laughs> um, student accent of mm. like, it's got a slight London tinge to it, but you pronounce everything. So, so kind of like ours, but you can say TH. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when my accent gets really bad, I start dropping T's or dropping, t- dropping T's and... Emphasizing F's all over the place, and then yeah, <laughs> I was like, "Yeah, it might depending on when I go to Aberdeen, because normally I come back with my, my accent does change, <laughs> and that's that's a thing from like being a kid and moving around a lot." Yeah, um, my um, yeah, my stepfather's got that real bad. His yeah. accent is like he's had so many in his lifetime of like born in, <laughs> born in um, like Scotland, mm. lived in the southwest, then spent a lot of time in Wales. And then in um, and then then moved to a medway. He sounds so medway, like 
painfully like you you would assume that he was born in All Saints Hospital. It overtakes everything, but which is oh, surprising. Which is surprising for not many hard consonants. What in, was um, in like Medway? I in, like we had an Medway. we had an English teacher that um, yeah. who hated me, mm. hated really hated me, and I despised him. Mm. Um, it's good to see you're over it though. Yeah, yeah. I'm over all of those fucking teachers who treat me like shit. But he said it was because the estuary accent is the laziest accent. That's why it takes over everything. Yeah. And it's as soon as you stop paying attention to it, then it wins. Yeah. Which is an amazing actually, attitude yeah, actually. to have to living. <laughs> that, you know, if I, ever take, if I ever let my guard down for a second, the locals' disgusting way of saying water <laughs> will just overpower me. <laughs> I had someone come up to me on the bar once and say, water. <laughs> Apparently that's like a Nottinghamshire thing. Is it? Yeah. Oh no, all the people I know. <laughs> when I was, whenever, I have a bottle of water. When I, when I used to go to Nottingham more, it was only to to go to hang out with people who had moved there from the south. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, there's this tremendous effort to sustain these particular things, and mm. all of the contradictions are, um, are magnified. Like you've got a, a an inc- like the way political organisation is in this country. It's most of the local power and organisation comes from ca- uh, frankly underfunded councils. Mm. Um, you know, national government has abdicated its responsibilities for ideological reasons mm. in local locales that it doesn't deem like economically significant. Yeah. You know, the whole thing with Michael Heseltine talking about allowing Liverpool to die. Yeah. That whole thing. Mm. You know? Like at some point that is going to the effort and the money required is just going to filter away. And I wonder how I wonder like <laughs> Like, I, what do you need England for? That is no need. You don't. You, you what if you have Britain hmm. uh, face out outwardly facing the world? The state uses Britain hmm. as its yeah. as its resource, as its its yeah. thing. It's the thing that it rules over, and it acts as a an imperial or post imperial state yeah. um, within world imperialism. Um, that's the the face it puts out internally. Like, does it? Need no. England? No. It needs well, Britain, maybe, but it really, doesn't need England. The thing that's really telling is, if Scotland... Yeah. Say Ireland unifies, hmm. um, and Scotland leaves, hmm. and if, God willing, Wales left, <laughs> um, but I could see that, that would take a lot, um, <laughs> they'd still call... The English would still call themselves Britain. If England would still... They'd still call themselves Britain. They wouldn't, yeah. even, they wouldn't even go back to calling the United themselves... United Kingdom of Great I'd say Britain, go back to calling themselves England, because... You know, that's well, a weird thing. It kind of shifts after the war as well. Yeah, because um, from the... England, like there will always be an England. Yeah, a little fi- a little field in England. You mm. know, a little corner. There yeah. will always be England. All of those words are used interchangeably. Britain refers to the government, refers to the state, refers to its imperial role. Yeah. Um, like, did you see all those? Like, just after um, Nicola Sturgeon was kicking off about Brexit a few months ago, mm. you had a load of liberals on Twitter talking like, "Take us with you." Take us with you. Mm. And it's like looking for meaning from another another country when you couldn't be asked to vote or work for a decent way of living in the one that you're in. Yeah. You know, like there's an abandonment of a lot of that because the middle class are all right in this country. Well, that's another thing to point out. Like, um, with it's the most hardcore England for the English. England is a country. Mm. With its own distinct national identity, God I love Saint George and all that kind of crap. Hmm. Um, they're the first ones to move to fucking Spain. They're the worst ones to move to Spain or threaten to move to um, 
Germany. Yeah. You know, they're going to move to Berlin. That's because they can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, ending with a quote from... Uh, Another quote from Benedict Anderson. Um, a nation is imagined because the members of even the smallest nation will never know most of their fellow members, meet them or even hear of them. Mm. Yet in the mind of each lives the image of their communion. Mm. We can't even work out the image. Yeah. I don't think England's a goer. No. I'll be honest. No, it's not. No. It doesn't describe anything worth describing. No. Not at all. Okay, that's us for this week. Uh, you can subscribe to us on iTunes. You can follow us at WDTATW underscore podcast. You can follow me at BM Bergamot. BM Bergamo. I'm never sure how to quite pronounce that because it's Bergamo like the herb. Um, I don't know. I had a dream. That's where it came from. <laughs> Everyone on Twitter was talking about like uh, explain your handle oh, yeah. today. And uh, it's like I had a dream. It's like most of most of my usernames. I had a dream about it. Got a massive crush on Tanahashi. <laughs> yeah, who doesn't? You would, you would Tanner smash that. Yes, I would. Uh, and coincidentally, you can follow Hugh for some Tanner smashing <laughs> at Tanner smashing on Twitter. Yes. So that's us for this week. Bye. Fighting am the least about the fighting game When Mr. Hoover said to cut my